It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. As the old saying goes, two wrongs don't make a right. As Christians, we know that love and forgiveness is the right way of handling a misdeed. But in the heat of an injustice, we oftentimes lose this all-important truth, and we respond to a wrong with yet another wrong. Hey, this is Eric. Before we venture into today's Daily Thunder message and witness some wrongs heaped upon other wrongs, I wanted to mention that we have added two additional week-long intensive trainings into our Ellerslie calendar in the late summer and late fall timeframes. If you're ready to escape the quarantine and get invigorated with some good old-fashioned biblical discipleship, please prayerfully consider joining us. Go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Now let's take a peek inside the hearts and minds of the citizens of the U.S. of A. in April of 1942, and watch how quickly the notions of goodness, peace, and brotherly love go out the window when they feel the sting of a Japanese injustice. Today's message is falling into a category of a challenge for me. And every now and then I'm going to run into a message that's going to ride a fine line uh, for even my own soul of knowing how to articulate because Part of it is there's a delicacy that can be involved in sharing truth, and a lot of times it's spiked by different circumstances around us. And you'll notice even with my title that I'm writing very close to an issue. Now, what's funny is I'm going through World War II, and I have the word riots in my title. Now, that is a deliberate choice on my part, uh, and I'm not trying to spike punch, but this is called the Doolittle Riots. If you know history, you know that in 1942, which is where we're at, April 18th, there is going to be something known as the Doolittle Raid. And uh, I am going to flip the term raid for riots uh, just to make a point indirectly or directly, however you're going to appropriate it. But to recognize that there is a, a proper way of handling our anger, proper way of handling injustice, and there's an improper way. And during any season of history, when the church loses its voice, the culture loses its way. It is imperative that the church does not follow political sway and social pressure to do as we are supposed to do. We're not supposed to fall in line and kowtow we are to rise up and demonstrate the love of Jesus and walk in truth and in light. And I would like to press on that today and basically begin to sort of make some clear lines biblically for our culture as we stand right now because in 1942 you're going to see similar issues, which is just ironic. Throughout this entire World War II series, it's been uncanny how World War II and what we're headed through right now seem to strangely parallel. So uh, payback on the Japanese, that's what the Doolittle Raid is. It is a payback. Now I want to emphasize and bring to the surface that word payback because what we're seeing in so much of politics and so much of the social climate is this idea of righting wrongs. There really are wrongs. But payback and the way in which we handle these things oftentimes defines if we are actually solving riddles or creating greater ones. And right now I would say we are very likely creating greater problems than we are solving problems. So the Doolittle Raid is going to happen April 18th, 1942. 
And so if you, if you remember our context, December 7th, 1941, which is of course five months earlier, we are going to have a very significant event in U.S. history. We are going to be brought into the war through one single event, and that's the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And so April 18th, 1942 is going to be payback day, paying back the Japanese for what they did. And this is going to be tremendously satisfying to the American people because there is a deep-seated resentment that has grown up in the bosom of the American people after that bombing. It was a betrayal. It was, it was a stab. It was a shar sharp knife to the back. And the American people are riled up and seething like a boiling cauldron. So the bombing of Pearl Harbor, I'm going to call it the seething resentment begins. December 7th, 1941 is... Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt so famously said, a day that will live in infamy. And then we have the Japanese Roundup, which on Monday I actually covered this. This is going to be a shocking violation of civil rights and of the Constitution of the United States. And it's easier to see in hindsight how shocking this is. In the moment, because of the seething rage and, and hatred and venom and bitterness that is crept in or flooded into the American mindset, they're blind to this. And that's what uh, Monday's message was. It was called Roosevelt's Blind Spot. And so this is the Japanese roundup where we're going to take 117,000 Japanese from their homes, from their businesses, and literally put them in what would be the equivalent of containment camps or concentration camps without the violence, without the torture, <laughs> various things like that. But there's a lot of food shortages, a lot of comfort shortages, a lot of difficulty that is going to come on these people. So I'm going to call that the jaundiced eye. And it's basically from the moment that the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor to the Doolittle Raid, you're going to see this roundup begin. So April 18th, 1942, which is what we're knowing as the Doolittle Raid, or for our sake today, the Doolittle Riot, uh, satisfaction. And so what you see is an attitude in the Americans. And if you're American in this time, you feel it, and you feel it deeply. Kill them. Kill them all. Kill, kill, kill who? kill who? Who are we killing? The Japanese. If you're Japanese, you're our enemy. Isn't that interesting how this very quickly became a racial issue? And even in the United States, there are Japanese Americans that have been here for generations that actually love America, but the moment Japan bombs Pearl Harbor, they become an enemy to the American people. What a fascinating event. And so this became racial instantaneously. And this is actually the attitude. That doesn't sound like a Christian nation, does it? Does it? Kill them. Kill them all. You know, I, I'm going to uh, want to run that through the, the grid of Scripture and see if we're coming out the other end properly. So uh, I've never been able to say this guy's name, but he was Sulu uh, in uh, the old Star Trek series, and he's a political activist now. Is George Takei. Take, that's how I always want to say Takei. But I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. Sorry, uh, George, if you happen to hear this. But his political views are very different than mine, right? His, his uh, approach to uh, social issues, very different. At the same time, his... His perspective of this is very interesting to me because he was four-year-old, 
Japanese American citizen at the time of Pearl Harbor, and so his perspective is very interesting. It was an egregious violation of the American Constitution, uh, he's going to say. We were innocent American citizens, and we were imprisoned simply because we happened to look like the people who bombed Pearl Harbor. It, just, it shows just how fragile our Constitution is. It's interesting because I think a lot of us, depending on which race you are, you can understand this statement. I'm going to read it again. And we were imprisoned simply because we happened to look like the people who bombed Pearl Harbor. You know, it's interesting, even in this uh, George Floyd situation, if you look like that uh, white cop who did that, you, you feel a certain angst coming your way. It's a similar type of dynamic that comes out of these crises, these crises. And so listen to what George is also going to say. I was four years old when Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7th, 1941 by Japan. And overnight, the world was plunged into a world war. America suddenly was swept up by hysteria. Now we could dis discount George's perspective because it's opposite our perspective or our political persuasions. However, being a Japanese American, I do think warrants him a voice in this because he was in an internment camp. Isn't that an interesting statement? He actually was in an internment camp. And I agree. I think America was suddenly swept up by hysteria. Their response is actually not in accordance with their grooming. There's different times in our life where we know what we ought to do, but then because of extreme circumstances in our life, we behave differently than we know we ought to behave. And that's what Monday's message was, was about. How we can be subtly blinded. Anger, fear, outrage all have a capacity or a potential to blind us and alter the behavior that we know we ought to be showing. It doesn't matter your politics in this. And I know it's really hard for people not to have a political persuasion in this. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your nationality. Listen, some things are simply wrong. And it doesn't matter... Which political persuasion you are, if you do it, it's still wrong. We, I, on Monday, I talked about the Romo rule, and Bill Romanowski was a Denver Bronco, and he was not a good character, sort of a bad guy, you know, on and off the field. On the field, he would give late hits and harm people and hurt people, but if he's on your team, you sort of overlook it. That's what happens in political sectors, too. It's like, well, he's our guy. So if he does this, well, then we overlook it. If the other side does it, oh, it's criminal. And this is very common. The same thing can happen in race. The same thing can happen in nationality. And so I am very pro-American. Why? Well, I'm American. I love my country. And I think it's an amazing place. I love our founding story. I love the story of the pilgrims. I love the formation of our government. However, when I examine certain things closely, I can see, you know, we didn't really behave properly there. And so it's not trying to self-justify us as a nation. I think it's okay to examine and to say, you know, I look at my own life and I don't just self-justify everything. I'm going to say, yeah, that was a mistake right there. And what did I do? I repented and I made it right. And that's the same thing for our nation. There are things that we have done wrong. And just because I love our nation does not mean I'm going to give us a free pass. Some things are simply wrong. So let's give some illustrations of that. The bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese was wrong. It was. It was a lie. It was deception. In every regard, it was a stab in the back. 
And yet, listen to this second statement. But so was the hatred, bitterness, and violent revenge cultivated in the USA afterwards. In other words, for a people that have the Bible, for a people that have Jesus Christ as their Lord, supposedly, we did not behave in accordance with Jesus' words. Because Jesus actually tells us how to respond to the Japanese in this situation. Now, I understand War seems to throw out all of that. It's like, well, that bypasses everything. That's like the free pass is when someone attacks you, this is a government decision. Governments don't need to behave as Christ would have us behave. And I, I can understand that, that logic. However, we need to recognize that as a nation, we rep, we've always represented something. And our behavior as a nation demonstrates the individual response too because we're a representative government. Hey, we want to put our people in place who are going to represent what we would want in this situation. Situation. And if you were to say, what do, you, what do you want us to turn a blind eye or turn the other cheek to Japan, Eric? Are we just going to let them have the Pacific? That's not my proposal. However, what I'm seeing in the heart, in the bosom of Americans at this time, is rage, bitterness, and hatred. You, you want your enemy dead you have to check your own soul as a Christian, as an individual Christian. I can't speak for a national conscience. I can speak for individual consciences and appeal to that so that our national conscience is pure. The mistreatment and killing of George Floyd was wrong. That's a fact. It doesn't matter who did it, how it was done. Uh, I mean, as far as if it was a white cop and, and George Floyd was white, it would still be bad, right? It doesn't make any difference. Now, the fact that there is racial elements to this, whoa, that spikes punch. But guess what? This is wrong. No matter which time period we're in, this is just wrong. But listen to this. But so is the hatred, bitterness, and violent revenge cultivated in the USA afterward. Equally wrong. Two wrongs never make a right. Classic, famous statement, but you know, it's a mathematical principle. Two wrongs never make a right. And so when you have a wrong, God actually gives us the proper way of handling a wrong. But when you respond to a wrong with another wrong, you actually just make more wrong. The Apostle Peter, this isn't the Apostle Peter, uh, this is the Apostle Peter, sorry. Uh, the Apostle Peter, it says, then Peter came to Jesus, or to him, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Seven is to the Jew a number of completions. So that makes sense, seven times. That's a lot of times to forgive someone. And Jesus is going to shock everyone by saying, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. As Christians, we specialize in one key behavior, forgiveness. Bitterness and resentment and hatred actually have no place in our living room. They have no place in our soul. When they knock, we are not receptive to them. They will knock. However, we as Christians live a life of love and forgiveness. Will we be taken advantage of because of that? Sure. However, we win because of that. Love is actually the superior war methodology. God designed it. And though I do not want to say it is easy to show you how Franklin Roosevelt could have handled this situation different as far as the war against Japan, because that's not my point or my uh, appeal right now. It's on the individual level. Even the church got swept up in this seething anger towards the Japanese. And that's where I want to touch on right now. It's the individual Christian. It's the, it's the church of Jesus Christ and how we engage in such situations. So we're going to talk about the Ludi family just briefly here. 
we have rules in the Ludi family. There's things that I would just say, they're just wrong, okay? I'm, I'm a big fan of no screaming, the no screaming rule, okay? Especially my boys. Now, I'm not a fan of my girls screaming either, you know, because sometimes they'll be jumping in the, uh, the trampoline and, you know, they spray water on each other and, you know, a scream will come out. And I still will say, hey guys, no screaming. I really don't like it when my boys scream, okay? That's, that's just, it, it's, maybe it's the, that deep-seated definition of manhood inside of me. It's like, boys do not scream, right? But no screaming, no shouting. Listen to this, no violence. It's, it's not even allowed, okay? If your brother or sister harms you, you don't respond back and retaliate with violence. That is never the solution. If you disagree, you work it out as Christians. And I'm not even saying you work it out as brothers and sisters, because that could mean all sorts of things to different people. You work it out as Christians. How does Christ define working it out? You always love, you're always patient, and you always forgive. So one of the rules in the Ludi house is if one of the brothers or sisters seeks forgiveness, then you are mandated to give, to forgive, okay? Because, and I'll even say, why? Because Jesus always forgives me. That's right. That's our reasoning. See, Jesus always offers forgiveness for our crimes. And so therefore, we are a free-flowing channel to always offer forgiveness to others. I have a picture of the Ludi family up on the screen here. I don't know how it comes through in the keynote, but it looks like I have a really dark tan. I'm not sure. Have you ever seen that where something gets up on a screen and it sort of makes you look like you're, uh, you've been in the sun a little too long? But uh, we have quite the melting pot for a family, especially in light of World War II, which is going to be Japanese against uh, American. And so I have a little Asian uh, in, in the picture here with Harper. And then in regards to the current issues of racism that we struggle with, you know, we have a little uh, chocolate skin in there mixed with some white. And in other words, this is like a melting pot. Now what's fascinating about this is this is God's design. You know, if you adopt uh, two little uh, chocolate children, did you know that you have a tremendous understanding and appreciation for a different race? You do. If you adopt uh, someone uh, of an Asian descent, guess what? You have a love and an appreciation for those of Asian descent. However, when you cut off and you allow for those divisions that Satan wants to set us up for, you can create these deep-seated prejudices that actually harm your own soul. Don't just harm your own behavior and harm them, but they harm you. So Martin Luther King Jr., I'm going to give a few quotes from him because I think even though I mean, I'm not going to, I'm very hesitant to quote people. I've, I've quoted Sulu from Star Trek today. I mean, I am definitely seem to be going off the rails today. And I'm, I'm quoting Martin Luther King Jr. I'm very fascinated in how Martin Luther King Jr. is going to respond to the, the challenges that his people are facing as African Americans. And it is bad. I mean, what the African American people have gone through in our country is horrible. And yet how he's going to respond and his mindset is beautiful. He actually is going to say, but how does God want us to respond? And then everyone else is going to say, but that's not going to change anything. Violence is what's going to work. We need to show them that we mean business. Okay, so when you apply that to like the Japanese situation in World War II, it, I understand it doesn't work in the American mindset. You can't just roll over and play dead. You can't be nonviolent right now. This is war. They have, we, we have to declare war on them. I get it. Listen to Martin Luther King. Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. 
I am not unmindful of the fact that violence often brings about momentary results. Nations have frequently won their independence in battle, but in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. That's a great statement, especially when you look at World War I. A lot of violence, and it did not bring permanent peace. It brought 20 years of supposed peace, but it was never peace. You can be 100% right and behave 100% wrong. Boy, that's a fascinating statement. You can be 100% right. You could have all the data correct, but you could behave 100% wrong. So I'm going to give some examples, and I'll give them from both sides of the ledger. Okay, This is a classic conservative uh, line uh, today. The mainstream media lies, and I think that is wrong. And I'm going to make some sound effects. Ding, 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 ding. You are right. In other words, it is incorrect for media to lie. Fact. Okay, now listen to the opposite side. Therefore, this is like the wrong response. Therefore, I hope all those journalists working in the mainstream media catch a fatal disease and die. Okay, now this is actually, whether it would be expressed that way, this is actually a sentiment deep in the heart of many conservatives out there. It's like they want all of those that oppose them just to die. They don't want their soul to be saved. No, they want them to die. And here's what I'm going to say. You could be 100% right. The media shouldn't lie. Ding, ding, ding. And you could be 100% wrong in your behavior and your thought processes and how you're handling it in your heart. And so this is the sound, wah, wong. Okay, I don't know how to make that sound and write it out. That's wah, wong. That means the wrong answer, right? You are wrong. So you could be right and wrong in your behavior. So here's a right thought. The way that that white police officer manhandled and killed George Floyd is despicable. Ding, 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 ding. You are right. Therefore, this is the wrong. Therefore, I have determined that all white police officers are evil and racist. You are wrong. You see, these extreme retaliations of soul actually lead to damage. It is incorrect. Just as much as an extreme overreaction to Japanese-American citizens in World War II, it is an overreaction that comes out of a boiling, seething hatred as opposed to out of the love of Christ. Here's another right thought. Abuses are, taking, abuses are taking place in our justice system. Not all people with power are handling this power properly. This isn't okay. Ding, 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 you are right. Now here's a wrong. Therefore, I'm going to riot. I'm going to burn things, break things, and create havoc until my perspective is taken seriously. Wrong, you are wrong. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. There are certain things that are simply wrong. So here's another right. What the Japanese did on December 7th, 1941 was wrong. Ding, 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 ding. You are right. Now here's a wrong. Therefore, let's imprison every American citizen that has one sixteenth or more Japanese in their blood for the next two years. Wrong, wrong. You are wrong. In other words, there's an improper response. You can be right and correct on paper, but wrong in your behavior. As Christians, our desire is to be both. It's to assess and discern what is wrong, but then to address it with right behavior. What the Japanese did on December 7th, 1941 was wrong. Ding, 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 ding. You are right. Therefore, let's hate them. Let's hate them all. Wong, wong. You are wrong. We are susceptible. This is a human issue. 
And right now in our country, we're seeing humanity express itself. It's just normal. This is how humans work. However, there is a solution for that, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ changes a human to not respond in the wrong way so that we actually have the grace and the power to respond properly and to show kindness and mercy and love. We can still stand for justice. We can still stand for truth. But we do it Christ's way instead of our human way. Paul the Apostle is going to give a key nugget of truth in regards to this. Romans 12, 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Right now, I would say our nation is being overcome with evil. In all regards, the political sector, the social media sector, the entire disinformation system that is out there that is convoluting the ideas of reality and truth. I'm a big fan of truth. And I really don't like it when lies are spread. I really don't like it when people respond with violence and breaking things and burning things. It's never you know, been a, a nice thing for my soul. I desire love. I desire Jesus Christ to be seen starting with the church. I don't expect the world to behave like Christians, but I do expect the church to behave. But a lot of us feel a pressure to come into alignment with a social ideal, to look a certain way, to participate in certain notions, because you will look really cool and hip if you do. I want to participate in Christianity, bringing the glory of Jesus Christ to this age. I do want injustice to stop, but the way in which we address these things must be completely and wholly in alignment with Jesus Christ. Solomon in Proverbs 16.32 is going to say, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. Jesus is going to say in Luke 6.27, Love your enemies. Whoa, 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 Jesus. That's very impractical. Very impractical to love your enemies. You know, I mean, how much bad stuff they could get away with if you just loved them instead of penalized them? You see, there are sectors of society known as government that have responsibility to bring punishment and justice and order. Most of us don't fall into that category. That's not our role. Our role is to love. Our role is to love. And even if I was a judge and it was my job to bring justice, I would still want to medi out that justice with love. Because I love the culture in which I live, the society in which I live, and I care about the soul of both the, the perpetrator and the one who's been perpetrated against. And so God is love, but he's also just. Another couple quotes from Martin Luther King. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. That's a great statement. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but if you turn on a light switch uh, and it doesn't work, the darkness remains. You see, darkness can't kick out darkness, but if you turn on a light switch and it works, then you're going to drive it out. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I like that. You see, there are very sharp divides being created in our culture today. It's civil war stuff. We've had a civil war in our country's history, and it wasn't altogether that far removed from some of the themes that we're feeling right now. And so this isn't 
boundary lines of states in this situation. This is boundary lines of souls, ideology. And as a result, it's dangerous for us all. But love is the only force, as Martin Luther King says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I like that. So when a wrong is done, it oftentimes elicits another wrong. Okay, this is humanity. This is how humanity works. And so it's sort of like the practical jokester thing. Uh, one practical joke uh, leads to another or prank uh, back. You know? So if you're a prankster, oftentimes you've had a lot of pranks done to yourself. Similar uh, principle. So we're going to talk about the first wrong, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Who is the perpetrator? Japan. However, America is going to respond with what I'm going to call another wrong, okay? That could be debated, all right? It's, I wasn't there, so to make an assessment of the decision of a government way, way back in time, sometimes we think we can see 2020, but if we're not there, we don't understand all the details. However, with the details that I understand, I'm going to at least speculate that this was out of fear, this was out of anger, and not always just out of reason, okay? And that's the internment of 117,000 American citizens of Japanese descent. And that was February 19th, 1942, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt issued the executive order. Perpetrator, the USA. Which is going to lead to yet another wrong. Now, to call this a wrong is dangerous. However, I'm going to look at this as a violent act upon someone. And the benefit of it, even though there were war benefits, was mainly morale for the United States. They were upset. And so this Doolittle raid is going to be put together for, you could almost say, the singular purpose of letting the American people know that we hear you, American people. We too hate the Japanese. We too want to see them get payback. And so what we have is the bombing of Tokyo. It's an incredible story. The Doolittle raid is a fascinating story. But April 18th, 1942, perpetrator, the USA. What's it out of? Spite. What's it out of? Bitterness. What's it out of? Rage. Okay? Whenever you're motivated by those things, it usually doesn't bring about good stuff. So now we're going to have another dynamic. You see, the Doolittle Raiders are going to come across. I forgot. I'll have the numbers in just the upcoming slides. But it's like 16 bombers are going to come over. And they have double uh, capacity uh, fuel tanks. So they can fly from out of the range of what the Japanese would ever expect. And they're, because of the, of the window of control that the Japanese had, the, uh, the Americans couldn't get close enough to fly in and bomb. So they had to build these special uh, bombers that had double capacity uh, tanks, but it wasn't enough to get them home. So they had to try and land in nationalist China. And that was the only safe place. And some, if you could get to Soviet Russia, maybe you'd be fine. We don't know, right? But you don't want to land in any Japanese-occupied territory. So uh, there are going to be certain do-little raiders that are going to make it to nationalist China. The Japanese, as payback to these nationalist Chinese communities that actually helped the do-little raiders escape, there is going to be a massacre of 250,000 Chinese citizens, simply as payback for them helping the Doolittle Raiders. So, May 1942, perpetrator, Japan. You see, what you see is a cycle of violence. It is, it's not stopping anytime soon, guys. We have a war remaining. In other words, this is just escalating throughout, and it leads to even a greater bitterness. 
dehumanization. It's a big word, but a very important one for what we are dealing with. One of the things that I've noted in Christian leadership is that there are people that they treat me very poorly, but these are people that could have really liked me in the past. And I, I always try and figure out what happened. And oftentimes it's because they took of you, maybe they entered into a lifestyle that was contrary to what I teach. You know, there's various factors that can lead to it. But what they've done is they've come up with a series of justifications in their soul why they don't need to treat me like a normal human anymore. And then they can hate me, and then they can seethe against me. It's really weird. And I've watched this happen multiple times over throughout my ministry life, is it's a strange phenomenon when people can actually treat me that way. It's like, whoa, I, aren't you a fellow believer? <laughs> and I, I've watched, but once you've dehumanized someone because you've labeled them a certain thing, which is sort of like it doesn't count anymore. You don't receive normal rights. You don't receive, receive normal kindness and love because you're of this variety. Whenever you're able to dehumanize, it really enables you to get outside the biblical framework of behavior. It's a nice escape clause. And so look at the definition of dehumanization. To deprive of positive human qualities. They're evil. Once you've classified someone as evil, and it's very common in political realms to do this, the opposite ideology, like if you're a conservative, you're a Republican, the Democrats are evil. Everything they do is evil. The way they walk their dog is evil. The way they wear their clothes is evil. The way they brush their teeth, I bet their toothpaste is evil. It's probably, you know, sponsors Planned Parenthood, you know, whoever makes their toothpaste. In other words, everything about them is evil, and that's called dehumanization. It's actually not reality. But, yeah, they, they are different than you, and there's no doubt, and they may be opposed to you, there's no doubt, and they actually may hate you. They're, that may, may, may be true. That doesn't mean that you should ever allow this process to enter into your soul. Dehumanization is not what Christians do. Jesus literally came to this earth to make everyone realize that he loves humans and that he is willing to lay down his life for even the lowest one of them. He is not dehumanizing. He is making humanity valuable through his shed blood. So dehumanization. First step, label and classify. Labels. I can't stand labels. I mean, denominations in Christianity. Which denomination are you? It's like, oh, you're one of those. I mean, we do it all the time. It is extremely dangerous. We do it, what, what political, oh, you're one of those. I remember this lady sitting across from me in Starbucks. It's one of those shared tables. And she made some noise, and she was looking to talk, obviously. So I said, yeah, you okay over there? And she asked me some question. I gave her an answer. She goes, the first thing. I mean, this is about, you know, 30 seconds into our conversation. Oh, you're one of those. And I found out I definitely was one of those. She literally treated me like a crack pot from that point forward. It's one, once you're labeled, it justifies a dehumanization. And so it justifies contempt. You can hold them in contempt. Oh, they're nothing. They're an idiot if they think that. And so you've immediately excused a certain venom to creep out. You justify exclusion. I can treat them hostile. I can exclude them from my pack because, look, they're, they're labeled this way. It justifies hatred, which then justifies violence, which then ultimately, as you see in Nazi Germany, justifies extermination. The dehumanization of the Jews is, you know, how it starts. You label them as being the backstabbers, the ones that are anti-German, the ones that are not of a pure bloodline, the ones that are opposed to our development as a nation. And once you have these labels established, you can excuse all sorts of things. 
So I have a picture on the screen. For those of you getting this via podcast, you're missing some really fun pictures today. Uh, you missed my great tan in my family photo. I'm sorry anyone missed that. But this is a picture of Donald Trump, and then you have Nancy Pelosi over there. And I, I think those are about the two most opposite people that can exist. Now, I'm sure there are probably opposites that are maybe greater. I don't know. But this is the one that really stands out to me. And what we see is a tearing. Both are American. We both should be fighting for the same thing, Right. And, and yet we see a split, but it's a ideological split along political lines. And these two, and I'm, I don't know that I'm exaggerating when I say this, hate each other. And probably both of them would prefer to have the other person dead, okay? Now that is not healthy. I'm just going to go on record as saying that's not healthy, and it has nothing to do with my political persuasion. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with my nationality, because I'm American, right? These two are American, eh? I want to stand up for my fellow American. I'm just saying that that behavior is wrong. Okay, so in, a, in World War II, we're going to see, and I have a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the same sort of ripped page, and I have uh, Hirohito from uh, the Emperor of Japan uh, over there, and you see a split. You're going to see a national split, an ethni ethnicity split, where actually Japanese are going to hate Americans, and Americans, or maybe I should, I should say non-Japanese descent Americans are going to hate Japanese. It's not healthy, guys, and I'm just going to call it what it is. That is inappropriate behavior. Yes, what Japan did was wrong, but that doesn't mean you penalize someone of Japanese descent who's your neighbor over here. He's your grocer, and you've been going in and buying groceries from him. You have a good relationship, but now you are required to hate him? That is incorrect thinking and incorrect living. So I have a very fascinating picture uh, up on the screen. It's a picture of me on one side of the ripped piece of paper, and then you have my two children that are of uh, black skin. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Now, if I were to ask you, is it inappropriate for there to be a tearing here? Yeah. You see, I am their authority, and I'm white. Doesn't that just elicit all sorts of rage in certain people? And yet, I love these two. And is it inappropriate that we are bonded together as a family? That ripping is inappropriate. It is inappropriate for them to spurn me, for them to riot, for them to burn things in my house because their leadership is a white male. In other words, that would be just as wrong. My desire is for this to be knit together. I desire to have Reese and Lily in my life, to love them, to understand the difficulties that they face, and I want them to grow up in a world of liberty and justice for all. I do. You know that that's what I want for my little Asian daughter? I want liberty and justice for you. But you know what I want for my children that are of white background? Uh, I want them to have liberty and justice as well. In other words, I want it for all my family. Well, that's the same for our country. I don't care, red and yellow, black and white, it doesn't make any difference. We want the same for all, and that's how a Christian thinks. So there's some red-level danger readings. Dehumanization, when you start to see dehumanization, woo, we're, we're heading off the, the rails, guys. Extreme labeling, you know, where you start to get the worst possible words. Like when someone calls me a cult leader, that is as deep of a blow as you can get in Christian leadership. You know, what does that mean? That means abuse of power. That means abuse of truth. That means everything. It's the worst thing. It's like a criminal activity for a Christian leader. So people will throw these things out. Why? Because that's the dig that they can give. People throw digs at, at, at Trump all the time. The worst possible terms that you can come up with. And guess what? I've heard the conservatives throw the worst possible digs the other way. In other words, this is extreme labeling. 
In my growing up years, we had labeling, but we didn't have extreme labeling. We have extreme labeling now, and it's very dangerous. Mob rule, where you begin to see culture be swung by this political correctness, where if this oftentimes democratic rule where it's emotion. If 51% of the people think that this person should die, well, then they die. That's why democracy, pure democracy is dangerous because it's not based on law. You have to have protection of the individual. Mob rule is actually very dangerous, and we're seeing that begin to creep into our country. The social snitch network. Well, this is Nazi Germany, where you begin to say, oh, if you talk with a Jew, we'll tell uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the authorities. You know, we're going to make sure that we keep this place clean. Snitch is not how we function. We function to love one another, to cover over a multitude of sins, not to expose them. Behavior control, where you begin to manipulate the control of society, whether that's social networking uh, or whether it's the way you speak, whether it's what I preach on, that you have to have a limit to these things. And this is very dangerous stuff. Red level danger readings. We're seeing all of these right now in our country. So let's look at the Doolittle Raid, April 18th, 1942. So listen to General Jimmy Doolittle. Uh, He's the one that's going to lead this raid. Obviously, it's named after him. Hitherto, acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must develop effective espionage and counter-espionage services and must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, and more effective methods than those used against us. It may become necessary that the American people be made acquainted with, understand, and support this fundamentally repugnant philosophy. I'll just lay it before you and let you chew on that. You see, this is the mindset that is creeping into the American military and the American government at this time. I get it. I totally understand it. But you know, this is what crept in in World War I when the Germans were actually doing terrible things to the French citizens along the countryside and when they were doing terrible things to those in Belgium. I mean, this was like outrageous. And this is the same justification they had. When one soldier writes home in World War I who's German to his mom, and his mom is like, I can't believe what I hear you're doing. And he's basically saying, look, mom, you don't understand. This is what is necessary now. This form of barbarism is how we protect our homeland. We have to teach them to, to actually fear us. So, as a result... We see a change of what Doolittle is saying. No longer is it fair play. Now we need to have subterfuge. Now we need to have strategy to actually hit them at the root. We need to make them pay. And the American public is going to need to start digesting this. This is just how we need it. If we're going to deal with the Japanese, this is what we're going to need to do. So the Doolittle Raid, this is from history.com. At the time, Japan's defensive perimeter in the Pacific was wide enough to make it invulnerable to conventional carrier-based attacks. In other words, like an aircraft carrier. They couldn't get close enough. So 16 Army B-25 bombers were rigged with double fuel capacity and loaded on the aircraft carrier USS Hornet. The original plan called for bombing five major cities, but last-minute detection of the Hornet forced the planes to launch a day early. With Doolittle in the lead, the planes survived storms and anti-aircraft fire to drop four bombs each on Tokyo, striking industrial facilities and a light cruiser. Several bombs hit civilian areas, killing 50 and injuring 400. The Doolittle Raiders, as the plane's pilots became known, flew on toward China. They had planned to land in areas controlled by Chinese nationalists, but all ran out of fuel and crashed. 
Most of the crews parachuted to the ground where with local help they were able to reach the nationalist lines. One crew landed in Vladivostok and was interned by the Soviets. Three died in the crashes and eight were captured by the Japanese. If you've ever heard of Jacob de Chazer, he was one of the eight that was captured by the, the Japanese. And his story is just tremendous. If you guys ever want to look up a really good story, uh, a biography, Jacob de Chazer's is just tremendous. But Jacob de Chazer, in his biography, you're going to see his hatred and his venom towards the, United, towards the Japanese. You're going to see it. He is willing to go on this raid. He's a bombardier. He's actually the one that's going to be shooting the bombs, right? And he wants revenge. And so you see it in the heart of the soldiers. And he is now captured, right? And he is being tortured by the Japanese. So how do you think his opinion of the Japanese is about now? You know, right? He's already mad about Pearl Harbor. Now he's confined and he's being tortured and war crimes are being committed against him. The bitterness of my heart, says Jacob DeShazer, against my captors seemed more than I could bear. Yeah, bitterness will kill you. It will. You know, if I could give you any piece of advice, it's forgive. <laughs> it's the greatest piece of advice I could give anyone. When you are bitter, your heart actually loses its sensitivity like its nervous system, and it becomes a heavy weight in your soul. And this root system goes throughout your life that actually eats away at your health. It's terrible stuff, bitterness. So Jacob DeShazer was a Doolittle Raider, which is a huge thing. I mean, he's going to be famous for this, be, just being one of the Doolittle Raiders. The United States uh, citizens were so proud of these guys. They were motivated by hate and revenge to pay back the Japanese. So DeShazer is captured by the Japanese, identified as one of Doolittle's men, imprisoned and tortured for the remainder of the war. 40 months, I think, is what it was. Overwhelmed by bitterness and venom, he encounters Jesus in a Japanese prison cell. The story is great, okay? How in the world can you be in Japan and actually encounter? He ends up getting a Bible in his cell room and he reads it and he encounters Jesus and he experiences the love and forgiveness of Jesus personally. Now get this. He dedicates his life to loving the Japanese and showing them Jesus Christ. He actually begins to love his captors. It's tremendously powerful to realize he's in a prison, being tortured by Japanese, but he learns that he is forgiven by Jesus, so he gives that forgiveness to the Japanese. And then he feels burdened that there's a whole nation of people that have never heard the gospel, and so when he gets home from the war, he decides that he's going to return to Japan and love the Japanese by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just amazing. So on his return to Japan in 1948, this time, I was not going as a bombardier, but I was going as a missionary. Now I had love and good intentions toward Japan. How much better it is to go out to conquer evil with the gospel of peace. So if I could slip something into our culture right now, it'd be that. It's just good old-fashioned Christianity. But when the church tries to play the social game, the social correctness game, we're not giving them what they need. What is needed right now is the gospel. What is needed right now is Jesus Christ. It's not just picketing and riots, it's Jesus. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for picketing. I would say that there's not a place for riots, but I'm going to say there's a proper way of handling these things that resembles Jesus. So I've mentioned this before in one of my previous uh, sessions in the series is Peggy Covell and the miracle of love and war, but Peggy's parents are going to be murdered by Japanese. Okay, they were missionaries over in the Philippines, and the Japanese are going to come into the Philippines and kill them. 
uh, in the, because they're American and because they, they determined them traitors, okay, and spies. And so she is somewhere in like Kansas or Colorado. I'm not sure where she was, but there was an internment camp for Japanese somewhere on the border of, I think it's, it might have been Utah and in Colorado. I don't remember where it was, somewhere in there. And she is going to give her life to serve and wash the feet of the Japanese. The Japanese, when they find out that the Japanese, or the Japanese uh, people in the internment camp, which some of them were uh, captured soldiers, and one of them in particular was a soldier that was actually captured, and he's put in this internment camp. And he, when he finds out that the Japanese had killed her parents, yet she's serving them, cannot figure it out. And he asks her, And she says, the Japanese army killed my parents, but the Holy Spirit has washed away my hatred and has replaced it with love. And this is, I think it's called the ripple effect of love, my my one session in the World War II series that goes into greater detail on this. But Mitsuo Fuchido, who was actually the one who led the bombing raid on Pearl Harbor. Okay, so I just shared with you one guy who led, was part of the bombing raid on Tokyo as revenge. Now we have the guy who's leading the bombing raid on Pearl Harbor, Mitsuo Fuchido. Revenge has always been a major motive in Japanese thought. But I am here to say to you that forgiveness is a far greater moral than revenge. I know you long for peace, personal peace, world peace, and I'm here to tell you the real, that real peace comes only through Jesus Christ. He is speaking after the war to a group of 7,000 people in Japan and he's referring to Peggy Covell. Isn't that amazing? It's like, this is the guy who wreaked havoc to start this entire drama that we were talking about. He's the one that delivered the first punch. And then Jacob DeShazer is going to come in and deliver the next punch. And both of them are going to discover something. You know that those two men traveled together through Japan to share the gospel with the nation? Isn't that just an incredible story? So, Mitsuo Fuchido, a Pearl Harbor raider, the leader of the entire thing. He's motivated by hate and revenge to pay back the Americans on Midway Island. So I'm not going to say that uh, Pearl Harbor was revenge. Okay, that was national pride. Okay, that was kamikaze. Hey, we're willing to die for our nation. This is essential. But when the Doolittle Raiders hit Tokyo, guess what? Mitsuo Fuchido is going to get his guys in the air, and they're going to now be heading to Midway Island with revenge in their hearts. Overwhelmed by bitterness and venom, encounters Jesus after the war due to the love of a 20-year-old girl or 18-year-old girl named Peggy Covell, experiences the love and forgiveness of Jesus personally, and dedicates his life to serving Jesus Christ. Listen to this statement. I remember, this is Mitsuo Fuchido talking. I remember the thrill that was mine when in one of my first meetings, I led my first soul to Christ in America. So Jacob DeShazer comes over to Japan to love, and he leads people to Christ in Japan. And then Mitsuo Fuchido comes to America and leads people to Christ in America. Okay, we're seeing something better here, guys. Better than Pearl Harbor and the Doolittle Raid. It's something that I esteem. I'm fascinated with war because it teaches me how spiritual battle works. But I don't like war. I don't like it as the solution. Even though I'm not going to say there isn't such a thing as a just war and a necessary one. When you're dealing with Nazi Germany and they will not relent and they're going to press forward their hatred and venom, you have to stop it somehow. I get that. However, I like this model. This is incredible. So what you see is uh, Eric and then this ripped piece of paper and little Harper. That's my daughter. That's an improper tearing. That should never happen. You see, I understand this as the Ludi family from a completely unusual angle. Because in a strange sense, even though Harper's not Japanese, she's Korean, 
She's Asian. She's right from over there, right? And there could be a venom in me as an American. I mean, hey, can you believe what they did at Pearl Harbor? However, there's nothing quite like adopting to solve all those strange riddles in your soul. Imagine if we adopted that one group that angers us, and we adopt them as our own spiritual project to say, I'm going to love them. You take, as Christians, you take the LGBTQ community, and you say, you know what? I'm going to love them. They may not like you, but you're going to love them. That's how things change. Breaking the cycle of hate, the love of Christ is the lone solution. And I said this earlier, but this is how we're going to finish. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 21 overcome evil with good. So as the church, let's remember that today, that it's the love of Jesus that is the salve, the kindness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. There are those on the opposite side of the ledger from you. No matter where you're at, there's someone on the opposite side. And the devil wants to sponsor an antagonism, a spite, a bitterness, and a hatred, an outrage. You cannot fall for it. That's the very person that Jesus Christ has assigned you to love and to reach. So it's a tactical maneuver to distort your mission. You have a job description, and that's to share the love of Jesus with the unlovely around you. They may be unlovely to you, but Jesus sees something precious in them, and he wants you to see it too. Go after them. And who knows, it could be the next Jacob DeShazer. It could be the next Peggy Covell. It could be the next Mitsuo Fuchido that changes the world. This is how Christianity has always won its victories. Let's not forget that in a time like this. Father, teach us and train us for such an hour. Show us how to live in an hour where division is rampant. Lord, we need your grace. We need your love to be shed abroad in our hearts afresh that we love as you would have us love. We need you, Lord Jesus, in this time. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.